everybody. Welcome to our next lesson in Introduction to the New Testament. So last time we were talking about um, what Jesus did. We looked at his actions. Uh, we looked at his miracles, and we saw the different types of miracles that Jesus performed. And now we're going to take a look in topic four in what at what Jesus taught. So his words. So we looked at his deeds. Now we'll look at Jesus's words. And remember, both are revealing the kingdom. Both are revealing what the kingdom is all about. So um, I've opened up the PowerPoint. Now, just keep in mind, don't get confused. It says lecture five. This was a uh, an old lecture that I had done and it was, the course was designed slightly different, but the notes are the same. So make sure you don't get confused. This is actually for, for the accelerated class four. Okay, so the first thing we see about Jesus's teachings that is unique is he speaks on his own authority. Um, in the Old Testament and amongst the Jewish rabbis, you would quote authority figures, other teachers uh, to give your argument weight. Uh, Jesus speaks on his own authority, not like the scribes and the Pharisees, as the New Testament tells us. Jesus says, I say to you, or I say. And what he's doing there by speaking on his own authority, he's equating himself with God. In other words, he's making pronouncements without quoting um, an outside authority. He is the authority because he is God's son. He is the word incarnate. And one of the first things we see Jesus teaching is he is establishing his kingdom on earth. And the sign of his kingdom on earth is his church. And when we get to the gospel of Matthew, we see Jesus clearly building his church on Simon Bar-Jonah. This means Simon, son of Jonah or Simon, son of John. And Jesus renames Peter Rock in Greek, Petros, which means rock. So Jesus gives his authority to Peter as the head of his church on earth. Now, why does Jesus do this? Because Jesus knows that one day he's going to go back into heaven to his father, yet he's still going to have a kingdom on earth. And he's still going to rule through that kingdom on earth, but he's going to rule through his successors. In other words, Peter and his successors and the successors of the apostles. So Peter has a unique authority. He has Jesus' authority on earth. He is the chief shepherd who we call the Pope. And Peter's successors, the bishops of Rome, are popes. And they have ultimate authority in the church because they're given the power of the keys by Jesus and the power to bind and loose. We see this in Matthew chapter 16, verses 17 and following. Jesus says, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So Jesus is giving Peter authority. So in his church today, the popes have Christ's authority in matters of faith and morals, binding and loosing. And the keys represent that authority of Jesus. That's why the papal flag has keys on it. So 
he's clearly establishing a church. So what do his members of his church, how are they to act in this church? Well, first of all, Jesus says that holiness goes deeper than just the minimum. In other words, there's a letter of the law, but Jesus wants us to go deeper to the spirit of the law. So he gives us a new law, which takes the old Jewish law and elevates it and orients it toward the kingdom of God. So what Jesus does is he goes beyond the minimum. He'll say in the Sermon on the Mount, you've heard it say, you shall not kill. Okay, that's the minimum of the old law. But Jesus wants us to internalize the spirit of what that law really means. That law is based in love of neighbor. So Jesus says, don't get angry. Don't hate your neighbor in your heart. So it goes beyond just physical killing that Jesus wants us to go further and see the reason for that law. So unfortunately, many of the followers at the time of Jesus misunderstood his message and felt that Jesus was abolishing the law, but he's not. He's fulfilling it by giving it its deeper meaning. And he does this on the, in the Sermon on the Mount. So the Ten Commandments sum up the old law. Love of God, the first four commandments. Love of neighbor, commandments four through ten. So Jesus says in Matthew 22, love God with your whole heart and your neighbor as yourself, to paraphrase Matthew 22. This is the law and the prophets. So this is what the old law, this is the purpose of the old law. So what Jesus does, and he teaches primarily in the greatest sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount. And we have this in the Gospels, but especially detailed in Matthew's Gospel. So we're going to take a look mostly at Matthew's version. And Jesus preaches this on a mount, which shows he's a new Moses giving a new law, because we know from the old law that Moses uh, gave the old law from a mount, a mountain, Mount Sinai. Jesus is giving us a new law. He's the new Moses. So Jesus, the same word of God that spoke at Mount Sinai, gave the written law to Moses that made it itself heard anew on the Mount of the Beatitudes. So what they're saying here is God's word spoke to Moses. Now we have God's word in the flesh. Jesus speaking a new law on the Mount of the Beatitudes. The Sermon on the Mount begins with the Beatitudes. They're called Beatitudes because they begin with blessed are. So it's clear to see here that Jesus is not abolishing the law. He's fulfilling the old law of the old covenant by giving it its ultimate interpretation in a divine way. So Jesus will say something like, you have heard that it was said to the men of old, and he'll quote the old law, but then he'll say, I say to you, so there's the authority. So with this same divine authority, he's disavowing certain human tradition of the Pharisees. The Pharisees were so obsessed with the letter of the law that they missed the spirit of the law. So for instance, they wouldn't help an injured person on the Sabbath because they thought they were doing work. And Jesus would say, that's not the purpose of resting on the Sabbath. The spirit of the law would tell you to help your neighbor on the Sabbath. So they were becoming so obsessed with the letter of the law, they were missing the spirit of the law. So it would kind of be like if your, if your mom said, please do the dishes in the sink for me. If you were like a Pharisee obsessed with the letter of the law, you would only clean dishes. You wouldn't clean cups and you wouldn't clean pots. 
And then your mother would come back home and see all the cups and the pots and the pans in the sink. And your mother would say, I told you to do the dishes. What happened? Well, I did do the dishes, mom. You just said, do the dishes. You didn't say, do the pots. You didn't say, do the pans, right? You didn't say, do the cups. That's a person obsessed with the letter of the law. And unfortunately, many of the Jews of the old covenant became so obsessed with that letter of the law that they missed the greater meaning or spiritual meaning of that law. So Jesus is fulfilling that. He's going deeper. So the Sermon on the Mount describes for us how we are to act in the kingdom on earth in order to get to the kingdom of heaven. To quote St. Augustine, if anyone should meditate with devotion on the sermon of our Lord that he gave on a mount, as we read in the gospel of St. Matthew, he will doubtless find there the perfect way of the Christian life. This sermon contains all the precepts needed to shape one's life. So it's a perfect way of being a Christian. So far from abolishing or devaluing the moral prescriptions of the old law, it's not like Jesus is abolishing the Ten Commandments. They're morally universal. They're natural law encoded by God, uh, defined by God. So he's not doing away with it, but he's releasing the hidden potential in the old law. And he has new demands arising from them. So the Sermon on the Mount reveals the entire divine and human truth of the old law. So, for instance, uh, Jesus will say something. You've heard it said, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord which you have sworn. So what Jesus says is, okay, you shall not take oaths. But he goes deeper than that. He says, don't, he says, don't swear on anything. Now, he doesn't mean you can't take oaths, but he means don't take oaths lightly because people were taking oaths very lightly. He says, you've heard it say, you shall not kill. Okay. And he adds to that, you also shouldn't have anger, hatred, and vengeance in your heart. See, it goes deeper than just physical killing. So in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus interprets God's plan strictly. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Jesus goes deeper. I say to you, do not look at a woman with lust in your heart. You've committed adultery in your heart. So it's not just the action. It's internal purity as well. So from the Sermon on the Mount onwards, Jesus insists on a conversion of heart, not just empty worship or uh, blind, um, blindly following the law and not internalizing what it means to change you as a person. How do we change our hearts? He tells us to reconcile with our enemies, with our brothers before presenting an offering. He tells us to pray for persecutors. Pray to your father in secret. Don't be showy. Don't use empty phrases to think that, oh, the more, you know, that I say certain things, God has to hear me. Uh, forgiving people in our hearts having purity inside of us, not just through our actions, and seeking God's kingdom before all other things. So we notice in the Sermon on the Mount is where Jesus teaches us to pray the perfect prayer, which is the Lord's Prayer, or sometimes called the Our Father. Um, so the Our Father kind of summarizes how we are to act and pray in this new kingdom. So in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus insists 
on filial trust. In other words, we trust God as his sons and daughters. And we cooperate and trust in our father's providence. So Jesus says, don't worry, don't obsess. Seek first God's kingdom and all things will be provided. So revealed law is found in the ancient law, the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments notably. And it's also found in the new law, which we call the law of the gospel, particularly encoded in Jesus's words of the Sermon on the Mount. And this perfects the ancient law. So he starts the sermon with his Beatitudes. And Jesus tells us the secret to true happiness are the Beatitudes. But there's almost a paradox in the Beatitudes. Jesus invokes certain blessings on people who the world would say are not blessed, the suffering, people who have misfortune and sadness. They're actually blessed, though, because these people tend to be humble. And they will be blessed in a future reward. So the poor in spirit, right? Not the worldly, the powerful, the wealthy. The poor in spirit will inherit the kingdom of God and are thus blessed. So they're paradoxical. So the new law is a law of love, a law of grace, and a law of freedom. In other words, it gives us the ability to keep it in a new way because of the grace of God coming to us through Christ. So in the old law, and even today, most, I shouldn't say most, but some people interpret following laws out of fear of God. But in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells us to follow God's law as an act of love rather than fear. And in the old law, they tended to follow the law because they were afraid of what God would do if they didn't. Now, God is just, and there is a certain divine punishment, but our motivation in following the law shouldn't be out of fear of hell. It should be because we love God and we want to please God. Um, and that helps us avoid damnation because our love motivates us and chooses God's love over the sinful things that will lead us to separation from God if we do not repent. It's a law of grace. It actually helps us to do what it says. The old law was very difficult to keep. We're so weak and we're still weak today and we can never keep the Sermon on the Mount, but for the grace that God gives us to keep it. And this is why we need faith and the sacraments to help us, to give us the grace to act on this new law. And it's a law of freedom. It sets us free from Ritual and juridical observances of the old law that are no longer required, like kosher laws, dietary laws, purity laws, uh, animal sacrifices. These 613 laws that were very difficult to keep, the minutia. Now we're free, not that we don't follow morality, but we're free that we have seven sacraments. We have fewer things that are more powerful. We act spontaneously out of love of God. We pass from a condition of servitude because of our sinfulness in the old covenant to becoming sons and daughters of God because God can actually wipe away that sin because of his son in the new covenant. So the new law surpasses and fulfills the old. The old law is not bad. It was a necessary, um, almost like a necessary um, um, 
what's the word I'm looking for? Compensation that God had to give us because of our sinfulness to try and make us holier to prepare for his son. Now that we have his son, we no longer need the old law. It's fulfilled in the new. So Christ's new law commands love of enemies, unconditional forgiveness of those who offend. And that seems hard, but that's how God is with us. We're to imitate God's love. And again, we can only keep this with God's grace. God gives grace, even though we do not deserve it, because he loves as a father loves his children. So we must go beyond strict justice to practice mercy towards others, just as God is merciful to us. Jesus tells us to pray without ceasing, and God will hear us. Trust in God. And the Lord's Prayer, of course, is the model of prayer. And the final greatest teaching of Jesus is his bread of life discourse, where Jesus teaches us that he will give us his very divine life under the appearance of bread and wine. He will give us his flesh and blood in the Holy Eucharist, where we retreat, where we receive his true body and blood that will divinize us, meaning we'll partake as one with Jesus to fulfill his will and grace. So the Our Father, or some kind of called the Lord's Prayer. So we begin it with our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. So we are praising God and we are asking respect for God, our Father. Notice we address God as Father. It's filial, it's familial language. God is not a master. God is not a, a kind of like um, judge. He is those things, but those derive from his fatherhood primarily, out of love. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, we ask God that we may accomplish his will because his will is always best for us. Give us this day our daily bread. We ask God to provide for our needs, physical and spiritual, especially in the Eucharist, which we'll talk about in a moment. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. So we're asking for forgiveness because we're sinners. But we're supposed to practice what we want from God forgiveness towards those who hurt us because we're supposed to imitate our heavenly father because God is father of all. So these are our brothers and sisters. So just as we forgive the members of our family, and we should, we're to forgive our greater spiritual family and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So we ask God to give us strength in trials and to save us ultimately from our greatest enemy, Satan, sin, and eternal death separation from God in hell. So Jesus in John chapter six and in the institution narratives, which we'll get to when we do the last supper, teaches us about the Eucharist. Jesus calls himself the bread of life. And he says, I am the bread of life. Come down. I'm the bread of come down from heaven. He who eats this bread will live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh for the life of the world. So he tells us that we must eat his flesh and drink his blood to have eternal life. And the reward of eating the body and blood of Christ is resurrection from the dead, abiding in Christ, a promise of eternal salvation if we live in Christ's grace. And why does Jesus want to give us his flesh and blood in the Eucharist? Because we know the rule, you are what you eat. And if the Son of God comes into our very bodies and souls at Holy Communion, 
which we receive at Holy Mass. God is giving us that spiritual energy, just like we get energy from earthly food. Now we're getting God's energy, God's life, and God's grace. And that food will raise us up into eternal life if we die in Christ. Now, when Jesus said this sermon, a lot of people rejected him because they thought he was crazy. His closest followers believed him, but he, they didn't really understand what he meant until the Last Supper, which we'll get to. Um, people think, how can this man give us his flesh to eat and his blood to drink? They were taking Jesus' words as cannibalism. Jesus literally means we will eat his flesh and drink his blood in Holy Communion, but it's his glorified body. It's not a dead body. It's Christ coming into us. Christ never dies again. So it is a true eating and drinking of the body and blood of Christ, but in his glorified humanity and divinity. We call that the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. So at the Last Supper, Jesus will institute the Eucharist by changing the bread and wine of the Passover meal into his true body and blood. And we recommemorate this and represent this at every Catholic Mass. The priest will use bread and wine, and through the words of consecration, the bread and wine is changed into the body and blood of Christ as a sacrifice and as a holy communion. So what is this Eucharist? It's the sacrament in which Christ offers us his very body and blood as true spiritual food and drink. The bread and wine truly become the body and blood of Christ, the blood of the new covenant. This is why we no longer sacrifice animals because we now have the perfect sacrifice of Christ, his body and blood. So the Catholic Church follows what Jesus taught clearly, that the Eucharist is not a symbol, it's truly Jesus's presence among us, and it deserves the respect and reverence of the true presence of Christ. Okay, so these, that's a very brief overview of what Jesus taught. Now, as you go to your lessons, you will, read, you will read the Sermon on the Mount so you get a better understanding, Matthew chapters 5 through 7, 13, and 16. Please read those in your study Bible. And then read in your text 207 to 219, Understanding the Scriptures. Uh, then I have some material for you on the new law, some notes um, about the, king, the keys of the kingdom of the Holy Eucharist. There is one more thing that I do want to do with you. Another way Jesus teaches about his kingdom are through parables. Parables are a characteristic feature of Jesus's teaching. Um, they're fictional yet plausible stories. So they're unlike fables. Fables are fantastical with a lesson, but parables are taken from everyday life. They could happen. And Jesus teaches us through these stories. Um, and they frequently have endings with like a twist at the end. Um, so for instance, a parable of the pearls or the treasure in the field to gain the kingdom, we must give up everything. Seems like a twist, like a, almost like a paradox. At the end. And the parables are teaching about us about the kingdom through stories. Uh, deeds speak louder than words. Um, he compares the soil of farming to men's hearts. Um, using the talents we have received. So the parables sometimes are hard to understand unless we have a heart humble and open to God. Um, so they seem like secrets almost, but Jesus speaks them loudly, but the prideful, 
the vain, the arrogant, the sinful won't understand them because they're, they're too simple and humble for them to understand. So for those who stay outside the kingdom, the parables are enigmatic. They don't make any sense. So the parable actually means a comparison. Um, so the parables illustrate through similes and metaphor. And parables teach us about the kingdom. So the parables, the parables are illustrations usually from daily life. What it was like to be in rural Galilee at the time of Jesus, farming, shepherding, domestic scenes. Um, the parables are novel and they challenge us. They're different. They challenge, uh, they offer people the challenge of the kingdom of God. And the parables are supposed to um, change us somehow, make us understand the kingdom, which is, which is secret in the sense that you have to be humble and like a child to understand. Um, so the challenge of the parables was actually rejected by the majority who saw and heard, but refused to perceive and understand. The parables actually blinded some men's minds and hearts. They refused the challenge because they could not understand the parables intellectually. So the parables though, those who are open to the parables, those who listen to Christ's teachings, get an insight into them deeper than those who are hard-hearted and close to Christ's teachings. So some examples of parables we see in the New Testament in the gospels are the wise and foolish virgins to be ready for Christ's coming, to always be ready. The treasure in the field, that it's worth every sacrifice to gain the kingdom of God. It's even worth more than our very lives. The prodigal son, which teaches us God's mercy and forgiveness, and also forgiveness and love of our brothers. The good Samaritan, which shows us how we should treat our neighbor. The sower, which shows us the different dispositions of the human heart, either open or closed to God's word and the fruit that we can reap or not reap if we're open or closed and the workers in the vineyard, which shows God's mercy towards not so much looking at details of our lives so much, but as the spirit of the greater intentions that we have. We're not perfect. It's the little things that we can do for the kingdom. So you can look those up. They're in your study Bible. If you go into the section of parables, and see these parables. So please look them up. They're in the notes here for you to look up. Okay. All right, so that will, your homework will be the study Bible reflection questions for this topic. Okay. If you click that, you will see those questions here. Okay. And then your other assignment are your questions in your text, understanding scripture semester edition, questions 27 to 42, and then you have your quiz. I believe this particular quiz is, let's see, I think it's untimed. Yes. Oh, no, it's 30 minutes. Okay. All right. So God bless. And next time, just to give you a heads up, we're going to take a look at the Last Supper, the Passion, Suffering, 
and death of Jesus, topic five. Okay, so that concludes this topic. Hope you have a great week. And if there's any questions, don't hesitate to reach out and email. Hey, that will conclude. Godspeed.